Hello and welcome to episode five of Rank Up, a fortnightly on-page SEO podcast where we talk about technical SEO, content optimization, search engine news, and much more. I'm one of your hosts, Ben Gary, and I am joined once again by my regular co-host, Ed. How are you doing? Yeah, good, thank you. I've got my cafeteria next to me. I've got my HTO uh, ready. Um, so yeah, locked and loaded. How about you, Ben? Perfect podcast setup. Yeah, uh, yeah, I'm doing all right. I think since the last podcast, I actually went and got my chair from the office, so I am much comfier than I've been on any recording so far. Um, yeah. Who knew that a proper office chair is is an upgrade on a dining chair? Yeah, two hours uh, in one position can be quite intense, can't it? Well, especially when it's part of your eight-hour day as well. Yeah. I wish it was just two hours. Um, but no, no, so I'm, I'm doing well. I've got multi-screens. I'm still not quite at your level of setup but I would say I'm doing better than I was before. Yeah, you'll be able to get to this level one day. Don't worry about it. One day, I can only dream. (laughs) (laughs) And we are also joined today by this month's special guest, Sean Burton. How are you, Sean? Morning, yeah, I'm good. It's uh, Friday at the time of recording. Um, Weather doesn't look up too much, but, you know, I'm not going to let that affect my mood. I'm uh, feeling good, feeling good. Talking of... um, so yeah, talking of like setups, I'm currently stood, and it's been a feature of like calls, I guess, recently. <laughs> we got bunk beds for our kids a couple of weeks ago, and I've found that they they make a pretty good stand up desk. You position your laptop <laughs> just on the sort of top of the top bunk, and uh, yeah, you can stand up, stretch your back for for an hour yes. or two. I think I've, I always feel more productive when I. I mean, I know there's a lot, a lot of like benefits from a health perspective if you structure your body and things like that. But I always feel more productive when I'm standing up. Like I'm more aware. I'm less likely less likely to be drowsy and things like that. No, I agree. I mean, this is a little bit of that, but also because yeah. the inter- find the internet connection is also better in this room. So it's oh, okay. A, a win-win. Really. A full stand-up day. Yeah, <laughs> health and technology benefits to this approach. Before you had the uh, the bunk beds or the standing desk in that room, I remember you'd just have to go in and sit on your son's bed, wouldn't you? Which is probably the opposite of a standing desk. Yeah, yeah, it got a bit too comfy at times on some of those calls. But um, <laughs> yeah, the, the internet, it's, I guess it's one of those things working from home with um, just one sort of internet point and then uh, different rooms have different levels of signal. So it's fine for general sort of browsing and work, but it just didn't seem to enjoy any sort of yeah. call, uh, as you'll know, Ben, from our one-to-one. Well, I think of I think of anyone at Impression, you probably have the most interesting sort of background to your calls at any one point as you have to transition between different rooms and deal with your sons demanding attention and all of that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, I mean it can be tricky. Um, but overall it's not been it's not been too bad. My wife's here as well, and between us we have to try and sort of tame them whilst uh, the other one takes <laughs> takes whichever calls they've got scheduled in the day. Yeah. So uh, yeah, some definitely interesting. So yeah, on this call, on this um, this episode, we may have further guests. So we'll see how that goes. <laughs> the downstairs being quiet at the minute, but their attention span isn't that long. So we shall see. And with yeah. the weather being what it is, they can't just go outside all the time at the moment, unfortunately. No, no. Well, um, that's been a sort of yeah a challenge, but. On that, it's supposed to pick up from tomorrow, I believe. So uh, yeah, it's getting up to high twenties next week, I think. So we can all enjoy that from our homes. Yeah. <laughs> well, before we go into the rest of the episode, and we'll hear more from you in a minute, Sean, and get your full intro. Um, I just wanted to spend a few seconds uh, talking about the new format that we are bringing in with this month uh, to the episodes. 
ultimately the content that the podcast is delivering is going to remain unchanged. We're still covering our news topics. Uh, we're still going to be covering our main interviews with our guests and covering some other things uh, in between as well. But rather than doing it all in a big one and a half hour-ish episode that we release every month, we decided to break our recordings down in half as we realized we were doing about 45 minutes or so on the news and then about 45 minutes-ish on the interviews anyway. We thought it made sense to split those into two episodes, uh, release them every two weeks, uh, and make it a slightly more uh, easy to consume package, hopefully. So when you're listening to this one, it should appear as a shorter podcast on your feed. Uh, and you can expect the next one after this in about two weeks, uh, when Sean will be still with us uh, as we're still on the same recording session. Um, but we'll be going more into the, the interview side of the episode, uh, whereas now we'll be covering some of the news topics. So bear with us for this. This is our first time doing the new format. Um, we will try and make it go as smoothly as possible, but you never know. We're still learning with this. So uh, hopefully you enjoy it and we always welcome any sort of feedback uh, or anything we can do to make this better. We are, we are willing to listen. But enough of that. Sean, you're our guest this, uh, this episode and next. Uh, so it'd be good to hear a little bit more about you. Um, would you be able to just give us uh, a sort of quick bio as to your, your role at Impression and in SEO? Um, a little bit about what you do day to day and, and maybe the, the sort of abbreviated version of um, kind of how you got to, to where you are now. Okay, I'll give that a go. So my current role at Impression is the SEO team lead. I've been in this particular role for probably the last three to four months. Yeah. Uh, however, I've worked at Impression for the last four years, primarily as a uh, SEO strategist. But I yeah. guess as the title suggests, there's also a remit for line management. Um, so I also sort of coach and man manage uh, a number of our strategists or specialists, one of which is yourself, Ben, as you yes. And then um, alongside that, I guess there's a remit to support our head of department in some internal operations, process improvement, and just like it's a general day-to-day -day running of the department, really. Um, yeah. So it's sort of a 50-50 split between, at the moment it's 50-50, between, I guess, client strategy and delivery, and then uh, internal operations, which, as I say, includes uh, line management as well. Yeah. How do you... How do you find managing that split? Because obviously, I suppose when you start in SEO, you're just doing SEO 100% of the time. And then as you go on through your career, you naturally end up doing some different things and taking on some different responsibilities. Is it something that you found quite easy to adapt to? Is it still a bit strange? Like just kind of day to day, how do you find it? I guess I've worked in line management positions for a fair few years so at previous agencies um, I was also line managing so it's I wouldn't say I find it strange um, mm. something I'm quite comfortable with and something that I've done for a reasonably long time now but um, it, it does sometimes present challenges I guess in terms of um, where you it's, I guess it comes down to time management and where you where you sort of are able to focus focus your time um, mm. but I think staying sort of well organized um, keeping your calendar up to date and I think pushing back as well whether that be with mm. clients or <laughs> with internal things yeah and just being quite strict I guess with what you need to get done um, but no yeah. I don't find it strange it's quite sort of natural to me now but um, 
yeah, I think it's headspace is the key thing to try and keep on top of. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's awesome. Do you find um, that one of the, one of the conversations we've already had on the podcast with um, Paul, which will be a couple of months ago now when this goes out, um, was just around sort of uh, generalism and specialism. We chatted a bit about impressions approach to the strategist path and the specialist path. Um, and even I think in the first episode with Pete, we sort of chatted a bit with Pete about kind of what what areas of SEO he he still enjoys and how within his current role that kind of uh, that side of SEO and getting to do the day to day activities kind of fits in. Uh, how do you sort of see, I guess, see your approach to SEO and, and how has that changed um, over time? Uh, what do you really enjoy in SEO and kind of what try to do when you when you have the opportunity to do some SEO? Um, what do you enjoy doing or do you just see yourself really very much as a generalist and just kind of do whatever needs doing at, at whatever time it needs it? Yeah, I guess I've always been what you would consider a generalist um, going even further back. And I guess we probably come on to this in a bit more detail further in, in the episode. Mm. Um, you know, worked in agencies in the past where there was sort of a remit to manage, like not even like just the different facets within SEO, but also different channels. So at one point mm -hmm. I was managing smaller scale PPC campaigns alongside SEO strategies for clients. Um, and as you rightly said, as time's moved on, um, the need to specialize, I think has increased. Mm. I guess with that, my generalist tag as probably, probably still remains in place, although I'd say my focus now and the things I enjoy perhaps more on the strategy on the, on the strategic side of things uh, and particularly yeah. sort of working with clients and building those client relationships. I quite enjoy, uh, I don't want to call it sort of the top level, maybe it is, I don't know. I, I enjoy sort of orchestrating and pulling different parts of the strategy together, I guess the management and and that side of things. Yeah. Yeah. I guess with your kind of your role that leads that way anyway, doesn't it? I feel like with strategy, you need that experience, which you have shown, but also, um, because you have so many other areas that you focus on, so like people management and also the training as well. I feel like strategy is a bit more like resource intensive, uh, less intensive than some certain tasks. So you can kind of have that overview of the strategy, you can direct where you feel like you want uh, yeah, the website to go, uh, but ultimately you rely on your experience and delivering that strategy for then the team to support you on it. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, if we were to pick sort of like specific areas within SEO, then, I guess to an extent I've always enjoyed uh, the technical side of SEO, but I think what it comes down to is probably like the problem solving. I quite mm -hmm. like, um, I guess, um, unraveling challenges, whether that be in, in technical, I guess it's like troubleshooting. I used to work in, in IT um, <laughs> in another life, and I guess that sort of uh, analytical sort of problem solving um, Mm. traits that's still with me so uh, i guess technical lends itself well to that but then yeah uh, there are other elements of an seo that um you kind of need that that enthusiasm yeah mm -hmm. that's awesome i think this leads on to the, the sort of little intro question i had for all of us um just to get us chatting about seo really before we go into the the meat of our stories um was just kind of what if, if you had to pick a day-to-day -day task or just kind of a regular seo task that you enjoy doing uh, are there any that, that stand out for you as something you see as a particular highlight that you're always, if, if you get given that task or if you set it for yourself as part of the strategy that you're, you're quite pleased to do? 
Uh, I don't mind who goes first, Sean or Ed. We'll, we'll all have a go at this one. Um, I guess from my perspective, I think a lot of people, um, I mean, maybe it's not a task, but when you do the first kind of crawl overview of a website, <laughs> I feel like a lot of people always like, um, you know, I, I think I welcome the destruction of a website because I, I feel like I can see the potential if it was correct. So I feel like yeah. that initial crawl overview, you know, depending on whatever crawling software they use, just understanding if it's messed up or anything. I think if it's, yeah. if it is messed up, then I take a lot of excitement in fixing that. <laughs> so I think that's where I get my kicks. So you, you enjoy just being given an absolute mess of a website. Yeah. Yeah, very um, similar to what I guess Sean mentioned with like problem solving. I feel like that comes into play with that scenario. But then also there's a lot of opportunity to improve that. So I feel that's when when I see a lot that I can work with, that's when I know, yeah, I quite enjoy it. Yeah, that actually doesn't surprise me at all. <laughs> <laughs> Sean, what about you? What what do you enjoy? Um, I also enjoy running the first crawl of a website and perhaps not with the same enthusiasm as that. Um, but lending itself to that idea, I do, uh, I guess, again, it might not be a specific task, but I guess just finding out the opportunity within um, a, a certain site or business's um, CO space. So I guess that's like maybe like the um, initial sort of analysis of, of Google Analytics and how they're performing and where they're positioned, or it might be things like... Um, I guess current keyword rankings and com competitor gaps. So I guess those initial stages when you're starting to like scope out yeah. what the true opportunity is. Um, yeah, I, I think there's nothing there's nothing worse than when you do all that and then you're struggling to find things because you're like, what can I add if, if everything's like seems to be perfect? So I feel like as I say, SEOs we always like kind of shiver at the thought of like things not performing well, whereas actually it you know is an opportunity for us to kind of really prove ourselves. It's a kind of follow-up question for both of you. Do you do you find a big difference between that sort of initial initial look at a website before a pitch versus when they come on as a client? Like, given what you both described, there is it that very very first look before you've you know before you've ever seen the website before that you find most useful and most interesting, or is it once they've sort of signed on as a client and you know that you can maybe go a bit more sort of practical and in-depth with the recommendations following on from it? Yeah, I think I think a lot of the time, and I think it also le lends it down to maybe experience as well. I feel like in initial auditing, you can get a good understanding of what's happened with the website, especially with like algorithm updates or mm. how the website's structured. I feel like when we actually go into pictures, a lot of the time uh, we do are able to understand what's happened with the website or where it's structured in a certain way. So I feel like we do get a under, good understanding of that already. Uh, but mm -hmm. So I don't think there's too much, unless there's like a, a really kind of hidden reason why they've done something in a certain way, mm -hmm. uh, I feel like we're, we're normally quite well educated as to why that's happened. Yeah. Mm, I think we had a conversation related to this relatively recently internally. Um, I think it was broadly, you know, are we spending too much time um in the initial stages of like a a new business opportunity um yeah. and i think we all agreed that yeah whilst we kind of uh, i think the thing the the short answer was no because actually our approach has brought a lot of success in winning mm. and i think that comes from doing not all of the legwork in terms of where the opportunity lies but enough for us to then pitch that yeah. to the client and then yeah. be the best place to take 
take it into a fully fledged strategy and roll that out. I mean, uh, there'll always be further analysis required yeah. in months one, two, three, perhaps, uh, and things may differ slightly from what we originally sort of proposed. But mm, uh, yeah. yeah, because we do we do sort of go fairly in depth in the initial stages, and I think you need to. Yeah. Um, often, as Ed said, it's not too dissimilar from what we actually end up delivering. Mm. Yeah, I think I'm I'm very guilty of going down rabbit holes and pitches and spending a lot of time on certain areas. But I think there's also one thing highlighting it, and then also there's one thing fixing it. You think I think even in that pitching phase, if you provide a solution, um, there's always follow up conversations around confirming it, checking if it's the right approach, and things like that. So I feel like although we do give a you know a lot away, and people are thinking. I think people have always said, like, we're quite surprised at how forthcoming you are with ideas and recommendations. I think there's still a lot to be done after that phase. So I feel like, yeah, although we go pretty hard on it, I think we're also, um, there needs to be that testing of, you know, things going live and stuff like that as well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It's a fine balance, isn't it? We don't want to be giving all of the secrets away <laughs> during the pitching process, but enough for us to to have an understanding where the opportunity lies and enough for us to be able to sort of portray that to the client well enough for them to, to trust us and want to work with us. Yeah, you have to you have to show you that there's something meaningful that we're going to add on top of what they're already doing because otherwise why would they go and spend the money on an extra agency? Yeah. What, um, what SEA tasks do you love, Ben? Well, to be honest, I'm pretty similar to you guys, but from the content side, I think for me it's, it's the content audit. And this probably is after the pitch because we don't really do a full audit before the pitch yeah. because of how long it takes. But I like it when you go in and sort of crack crack the website's rankings open for the first time properly and throw in a few competitors. I, I think Impression has made quite a lot of strides in how we do that over the last few months, maybe even the, maybe over the last 12 months or so. Um, yeah. And I think we've done some quite interesting projects off the back of that. I know we've worked on a couple together, Ed. And yeah. those have been, I think, some of the most exciting things because you just see the whole opportunity for the website. Um, yeah. And with, with content, I think the most satisfying thing, maybe slightly different to tech, is not when everything is wrong. Because you can have websites where they just don't have any content or anything, and it's just really sort of clear what the recommendation is. It's like, get, get some yeah. content on your category pages or whatever. Um, yeah but it's more where they've got most of the way and then yeah. there's something missing and it's just sort of, you have to do a few things to find out what it is that's missing um, yeah. or what it is that's not working. And sometimes there'll be an overlap with technical there. I think again, on the stuff we've worked on together, you, you haven't been able to separate technical and content fully because one has very much affected the other. Um, mm. But then when you can get to that point of making those recommendations and, it's actually seeing the client implement them and seeing the changes that then is is incredibly rewarding and i think just as a whole process that's that's probably what i enjoy the most yeah i guess it, like you said it, it's maybe a quite a bit different to technical because i feel like with content you need to have that um that foundation to facilitate the content in order for you to yeah. kind of make sure that it's going live so yeah i guess you don't want to see destruction you actually want to yeah. see um you know the the foundations there in place that you can only build upon yeah i think a content audit is more difficult if there is nothing there already yeah. um because i think it, it helps to have an opportunity for content i would consider more where you've got rankings around page two or three 
Whereas in, in technical, obviously, you can have everything can just be broken and you can know that whatever you're going to do is going to make a difference. Whereas if you're starting from zero in content, you are going to make a difference, but actually it can still be quite difficult to gain traction and to really sort of start getting those positions where you're going to see a difference. Yeah, Whereas if you've got a baseline with a few things wrong, then you can often make those changes that are going to push them onto page one and relatively quickly they'll start seeing that sort of meaningful increase. Yeah, definitely. Well, I think that's also probably going to lead us into the uh, the top stories because I know we're going to talk a bit about content um, yeah. in these. And I think there's quite a few things that have come out recently, um, yeah. which we're also going to talk about around some guest posting and stuff, which we're going to come to. Um, but uh, Ed, do you want to do you want to take it away and and introduce your first uh, more topical uh, subjects to discuss today? Yes, sure. Um, so yeah, my topics, um, funnily enough, spread across kind of two blog posts. So I think there's been a bit of discussion most recently around uh, content uh, for e-commerce category pages and certainly optimizing content for e-commerce category pages. So uh, the first one is from Elidia Solis, who wrote around optimizing content in category pages whilst keeping its commercial nature. Um, and then also Ben, you wrote a blog post, I believe, last week or two weeks ago um yeah last to, week yeah on how to write optimized content uh, to, yeah how to write optimized category and product content for e-commerce websites i feel like although they're the same topic they come at it from two different angles i feel like a lady comes at it from more of a structural point of view whereas you're focused on like the writing and, and the targeting of specific keywords on that page and making sure that you target yeah keep that commercial nature in mind i feel yeah. like I feel that this has become a bit of a hot topic recently because um, I think there was some interaction with John Mueller where he mentioned around that actually bloating category page content can actually mislead uh, Google to thinking it's yes. more of an informational. So therefore they wouldn't rank it for when people are searching more uh, transactional queries. And I feel like this has been an ongoing discussion for the past few years of, you know, what should you do with category page content? I feel like there's all people always used to introduce category based content. However, yeah. people started to drop it off or they shoved it at the bottom. Um, most recently, I feel like they've tried to keep it quite short and sweet, which I think is maybe the best approach of, you know, based worlds of making sure that there's at least some content that's targeted. Um, but ultimately you want to supply uh, product listings, I guess, um, just from my nature, just looking into Alida's uh, blog post, I feel like in certain scenarios, I think, yes, she's done a great way of highlighting a few examples of where you can pit both sides of things of being quite informational with it, but then also providing at core of it, you know, product listings and everything around that. But mm. I don't feel like some of these examples um, are applicable to websites that have category pages at scale. I feel like there's mm -hmm. one example of a bike page where there's, I think, not as many category pages as possible, where if you're dealing with thousands and thousands of category pages, you're not gonna have that structure and unique nature to really kind of have that, you know, have that information displayed. However, I feel like there's a, there's a vitamins example where actually they do do a good example of introducing content, you know, quick Q and A's whilst displaying products as well. So yeah. I, I feel like it isn't in, you know, something that's still being discussed today. Um, what I would say is that I've certainly seen um, people that have always said, well, certain people that have said, you know, you shouldn't rely on content on category pages, but ultimately I've seen, you know, rankings decrease from reducing content on category pages. Mm -hmm. I've also, as mentioned earlier, uh, what I've just, 
in terms of just shoving content at the bottom. Um, I've seen you know content that's shoved at the bottom, and then when it's removed, the keyword keyword rankings have dropped. So I think if you're removing that content and you've you've dipped, I don't feel like that's a good sign of your category pages. And if that if that was supporting your category pages, you should yeah. there should be done more. There should be more efforts to do in terms of internal linking, keyword targeting, yeah, and, and better content on that page initially. So. Yeah, I, and I've summarized that quite <laughs> in depth, but um, I think it's still an important conversation to have. I feel like yeah. these two blog posts show good examples of how uh, it's structured. So yeah, I, I guess I would to bring it to discussion to get your yeah. guys' thoughts on it as well. Well, thank you for the shout out. Because <laughs> I, I, obviously, I did write the blog post, but you know, I feel a bit feel a bit bad if I'm the one to shout about it on the podcast. And I, I didn't ask Ed to do that; he did that off his own off his own back. Sponsored post. <laughs> um, I think I, I I would probably want to start with getting your thoughts on on John Mueller's quotes because I think, like you said, that's where a lot of the most recent discussions have come from. And I think both me and Alada made reference to the quotes in the articles and. Um, the original one, I think, was um, where Marie Haynes was was interviewing him, and she asked uh, what her question. Just to read it out, was um, so rather than having SEO text at the end of an e-commerce page, do you have recommendations? There are some obvious things that users would want, but are there certain things that would be helpful in terms of what Google would want to see on an e-commerce page that you can share? And I won't read out all of John's answer because it's a sort of a couple of paragraphs long in terms of text. But essentially, what he says is, yes, it's useful to have content um, because he said it's really hard for Google to understand the pages without it. Yeah. But he did also say that maybe ninety to ninety-five percent of that text is unnecessary. Um, yeah. And I suppose he's specifically talking about the kind of text at the bottom of the page as well, which is often seen as maybe a little bit uh, a little bit spammier. Uh, a little bit more sort of old hat SEO where you're just sticking the text there for the sake of it rather than putting users first. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I do, I find it interesting what you, given what you said, like saying that getting rid of 90 to 95% of it, if your page is doing well, seems quite extreme and I wouldn't necessarily recommend that all the time. No. Um, it's kind of two things. He's kind of said, yes, we need content, but don't do, don't do yeah. too much. I mean, do you, do you both, agree with kind of what he's said there does it does it bear up with what you've seen on websites you've worked on especially in recent months and years i'd agree i'd agree yeah i mean i think one thing to add is that it will depend on the 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 SERPs. i think you've got to do a level of analysis before deciding which route you choose to take and um, to give an yeah. example we work with a particular client that supplies uh, boilers and for some of their head terms or what we consider head terms, you perhaps think they are um, c c terms with commercial intent, um, but right. when you search on those keywords, you actually get a mix. So mm -hmm. you, know, you are getting product information. You're getting, guess, e-commerce style um, category pages with products listed. Um, but there's also a lot of informational content that ranks really highly. So in that respect, I think we have to have a mixture of the two. Um, mm. And then it probably comes down to like UX, as you've said. So how do we best structure a page that meets both of those needs whilst yeah, maintaining yeah. the right experience for the user, showcasing products and information. Um, so yeah, I think I do agree with what, what John said. If we're talking about sort of, I guess, I know, pure play e-commerce, then again, it's, yeah. it's tricky, isn't it? Because as we've all 
noticed or seen through our tests um if you do start removing content i think it's a nervous makes you nervous um and yeah then, you know when you cut when the competitors are also taking the same approach of including you know a, a paragraph above the fold and then it may be included some some information below the products yeah and they're ranking better than you it's sort of well do we how do we not take that approach do you know what i mean so yeah 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 i think um just from my perspective, I feel like, yes, I prefer like the short snippets of content there. I feel like if we are stuffing content at the bottom of category pages there, if we understand that Google prioritizes content from, you know, the top towards the bottom and that, I think even if the content at the bottom is probably devalued anyway. So mm. I, I kind of like short snippets. I also kind of, um, I'm a big believer in terms of facilitating the user journey. So mm -hmm. if we are talking about like, um, a major keyword say for example uh men's jeans and then you have a category page you have your short snippet of content ex you know explaining the offering and then you have the quick links towards subcategories because they're mm. for i feel like you have that content but then you have these category quick links which educate the user which work alongside the faster navigation and just basically you know help that user see the popular options and you know encourage them to explore so yeah i don't it is a uh, without saying it. I think I say it depends the most on this uh, on this <laughs> podcast. But um, I think a lady just shows so shows that I think if you have a specialized product range, there is opportunity to be a bit more uh, to invest more in terms of a content yeah. structure around your product listing. So um, yeah, putting like bestsellers, uh, Q and As, uh, certainly more USPs around your products. But I feel like if you're doing it on scale, it's going to be quite hard to. Uh, adopt yeah. that approach and therefore yeah short snippets will certainly help um i think google understand the commercial nature of that page but you're going to have to have all those other signals as well like internal links and um, yeah i think the a metaphor that i used in the the blog post that the more i the more i use the more or the more i think about it the more i actually quite like it um yeah. is with with category content to imagine imagine it kind of um in a in in the scenario of a physical shop and kind of how you help customers in a physical shop um because i think that can actually go quite a long way to showing the purpose of category content i mean ultimately you have some people who walk into a shop and know exactly what they want to buy and they'll just go and get it off the shelf check out be done and you know you get those people on websites as well who they don't care about the content they know what they're looking for they're just going to go and find the product link and off they go Mm -hmm. But the, the people that the cat I really see category content as being for are the people who do want a little bit more help, who are still browsing um, yeah. and maybe need a bit more of expert opinion as well. And that's where the category content can come in. And I think if you if you think of that category content as the the virtual shop assistant who knows the product range, who can highlight particular brands, who wants to draw attention to particular offers that might be on. Um, or sort of best-selling products, like all of that kind of stuff, um, and would sort of guide someone in the shop to a particular area or a particular product. That's what your category content can do. And I think internal linking, along with sort of the basic keyword targeting, is the most important thing that category content can do. 
um, <laughs> because it can function in just that way. And it's going to, like you said, it's going to help the user journey. It's going to help them find the products and, and other categories that you want them to see. And it's also going to do a similar function to Google as well, because you're going to be creating those associations between categories for, for Google and other search engines to follow too. Um, and I just think that's a really good approach to category content and um, to, to extend the metaphor even further, if you were going to talk to that shop assistant and then they just waffled on for 20 yeah. minutes about the history of that particular brand or product, you're probably yeah. not going to be that interested. You're just going to want to know what to buy. Um, yeah. So it does apply too. Um, but having said all that, I would be, I, I would prefer to make recommendations for category content where you're either creating it from scratch or it's not great already like there's there's maybe not much there because like we've already mentioned i think there is a lot more risk when you're dealing with a lot of entrenched category content to significantly change that or reduce it does open the website inherently to a lot of risk and i think if you're going to take that approach i wouldn't want to be too gung-ho about it you might want to trial it on a couple of pages that aren't the most commercially yeah. viable already like definitely if you're going to reduce category content a hundred percent do not go and do it on your most important best performing category pages first um, <laughs> go go and do it on you want to do it on category pages which do have some performance like maybe they're kind of bottom half of page one but aren't really driving a lot of traffic or aren't really driving a lot of revenue trial yeah. it on those don't trial it on your top ranked men's yeah. jeans category page that's making you thousands of pounds every month yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, sorry. i was just going to say i think when when we're talking about content can split it into two two distinct areas really because we're talking about content is in the sort of physical words on a page but mm. actually it's more than that it's, it's everything within that category that feeds into additional content if that makes sense we're talking yeah. about the user experience aren't we in terms of your um store metaphor yeah <laughs> then um or analogy i guess it's um it's not just the words on the page it's providing um, it's adding value and it's providing useful links perhaps and resources mm -hmm. i mean there's a i don't know about you guys but i always have like my go-to blog posts so yeah if you can't keep keep up always with the latest um sort of news coming out of the seo industry i always find that like i resolve a lot of my problems or challenges by googling as i'm sure every seo does yeah uh, and there's pretty much uh, a thought on every every sort of topic so there's a go-to post that i often return to by uh, cyrus shepherd i think it was published in 2018 and i'd say it's still really relevant because he talks about i guess turning your category pages into pages and within that yeah. he's sort of describing that um instead of simply like listing pro products um and, and posts the, the hub page or the category should sort of like say educate and answer questions mm. it should link to useful resources it should help people find what they need it should engage people mm -hmm. and it shouldn't uh, should act as an authority on the topic and i don't think you're going to achieve all of those things by um writing some words at the bottom of your page yeah. so it does fall into sort of ux the design and the experience yeah to to push the metaphor one more time um and i think to link it back to what you've just said there sean and what Aleda solace has written as well um i think the more specialist your product range is the more the more work your content can do um yeah. because like that example of like if you're a small bike company and you make sort of bespoke bikes you really your category page is your opportunity to show off what you do and to really help customers understand that 
that product. Um, and it, it, I mean, any sort of sort of more specialist product where the audience is unlikely to just already know about your product range and sort of how to differentiate between them. That's absolutely an opportunity to make your category content more than just a basic paragraph or a bit of SEO text. Like you can, you can really do a lot of the work of selling your products there. Yeah, agreed. I think just uh, maybe and on this point, I think yeah. also um, whilst we also talk always talk about this and like have discussions in the industry, I think the best thing is just to go ahead and test exactly what you said, Ben. Um, use mm -hmm. a few category pages. Um, have a one approach with one, one approach with another. Annotate it within analytics and your yep. keyword tracking, um, and then see the impact of that. Um, don't do whole, you know, site-wide changes. Test a few. If it's work, if it works for you, then you know, go ahead and start implementing the the preferred method that's yeah. uh, delivering your performance. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, we'll we'll leave it there because we got a couple more things to get to, and I definitely want to make sure we can do the um, the guest post stuff justice. So. I'll do my article next and we'll probably go through it relatively quickly. Um, just to say as well, we will make sure that all links to these articles and anything else that we mentioned, like that Cyrus Shepherd article, uh, we'll make sure we dig up the links for it and put them in the show notes so that you can go and read the content for yourself rather than just taking our word for it. Um, yeah. But the one I wanted to talk about is an article on Search Engine Journal that was published uh, just earlier in June. Um, by Hamlet Batista. Uh, it's the first article I, I have come across of his, but it was quite interesting and I thought it will lead quite well into some of the other conversations we're going to have in the next episode um, about kind of new new approaches and new technologies and SEO. Um, it's talking about natural language generation. Uh, the title is How Natural Language Generation Changes the SEO Game. And the article is kind of a split between technical processes for using natural language generation and, and actually sort of carrying it out for your website, um, and also then the applications for it and uh, how it can be used well. Um, and that's the side that I kind of want to talk about because I'm not an expert in, uh, in the actual practicalities of language generation. Um, <laughs> if I do it, I will rely on tools that other people have made. Um, but I thought there was quite an interesting conversation to be had around the proper applications of this and if it's actually likely to make a difference in the world of SEO or, or not, or maybe how far off that impact is going to be. Uh, and to summarize a lot of what's in the article, essentially uh, Hamlet raises the fact that there's these issues around kind of thin content pages and you get, you get lots of websites where you, do, you need to generate a lot of content, but to do so, manually would take a long, long time. Um, yeah. So natural language generation is a potential solution to that problem, which could apply to category pages like we've just discussed, could apply to product pages. Uh, and interestingly, one application that I hadn't actually considered before this, but I think is, is quite interesting, is on informational content, it could be used to do shorter question answers. So maybe in the context of an FAQ or just a short page that's just kind of answering a single relatively simple question. Uh, it yeah. can generate content there. Um, I can't remember if it covers it properly in this article, but um, I think kind of based on the technology we have at the moment, it's generally accepted that long form articles are still sort of out of the question to actually yeah. kind of compete with what humans can write. But that sort of form of Q&A where you have a definite input, like you can ask the natural language generator a question and get, the, get, get it sort of output from that uh, does seem a bit more viable. Yeah. So, yeah, I thought I'd raise this with you guys. Um, 
what what yeah. are your thoughts like, do you see this becoming a big thing and i don't think we've done unless you guys have i don't think we've done anything with natural language generation extensively we've done a bit of content automation but it hasn't been sort of ai powered uh, no. do you see this as being a big thing like do we need to do we need to take stock of this and and get used to it i think um this is kind of the net next evolution of kind of these generated landing pages and I, th I think there's a lot of websites out there that are doing that successfully now um i think train lines an example of where they're able to scale content across thousands and thousands of pages by just pulling in relevant information i think they do it well with like average like train time journey and mm. pulling it through like apis and things like that which ultimately create a, a nice landing page for the user um i yeah. feel like this is probably the next step um, I, I don't think it's, we're not going to get to a state where, I mean, no company is set up, I don't think, to kind of create a level of unique content for a page uh, and, yeah, for it to be unique and well-written. I think, I guess, the the ultimate um, issue with this is maybe, like, the quality control of this, mm -hmm. the, the output of that, and I feel like there needs to be some element of that. When it's created, there needs to be some kind of, uh, testing of these pages, uh, mm. using like crawling software or scraping content potentially yeah. uh, to test that out. But I feel like this is probably the next evolution of, uh, well, the next step of yeah of uh, what we're seeing with a lot of major websites now, where they're generating um, user-focused content through like their yeah. API, APIs and fetching certain data to present this in a way that is you know useful to users. Whereas this is a bit more yeah a bit more specialized, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I do see this as an evolution for my role in the future uh, as a yep. content specialist. I think, or I would like, I, I'm interested by this. I would like it, I would like to be able to get to the point in the future where I can sort of work with clients on on doing this well. Um, mm -hmm. I personally don't want to run away from it. I think it's a good thing to embrace, um, which may <laughs> sound counterintuitive as someone who also writes content. Um, but I think for people like me, there's an opportunity to understand, you don't have to understand all the mechanics of the AI, but kind of understand what's it looking for and how, in the broadest sense, is it generating this content? Yeah. And what are the, I think it would be important to know how to troubleshoot it, to know what yeah. to look for, like what are the signs that something isn't working well? Um, and almost to be able to then curate that content and to be able to refine the process to get it to a point where it is useful. Yeah. I think I if think we... Yeah, sorry, go ahead. I think there's also an element of when, where, when and where are you introducing it? I think yeah. if it's, you know, customer facing content, um, you want to have that level of um, creativity coming from like a, a person um, and a specialist in order to, you know, be a bit more strategic in terms of how the content's laid out. But however, yeah. if you're trying to do it at scale, I feel like this is where this is, you know, perfectly set up for it. Yeah. What are your thoughts on this, Sean? I'd agree with, Ed, in terms of the quality control, that would be one thing I'd be cautious of and to keep an eye on. But I think for agencies and for, for clients, it could be a big cost saver. Um, yeah. You know, um, it, 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 efficiency, I guess, is <laughs> is the main, main value uh, it would add. Um, yeah. And the ability to scale um, quickly, which would re re reduce costs in terms of a, a human having to sort of input that content. Um, and the other interesting part, I think, is the fact that it's machine learning AI. So, it, it, you know, it, is it making sure that the keyword targeting is spot on from what a search engine would be looking for? Mm. Um, 
I definitely think there'll be use cases for it. And like, along with yourself, Ben, I'd be interested to to understand how we could utilize something like that. As Ed said, we have not done this exactly, but we have, I guess, automated content for some clients using variables uh, to mm-hmm. ensure the pages are unique. Where we've got, I mean, we've got one client where they're, you know, the current challenges to index. About five to seven million pages. Obviously, we're not going to <laughs> write unique yeah. for all of those pages, so we need a level of automation there. Um, and with that, we've had to send check the work, make sure that it reads well, make sure that it is unique per page. But yeah. that example um, has allowed us to, to scale that quickly. Yeah, yeah. Ed and I have done a similar thing as well for another client recently, with where it was about three hundred ish pages that needed. They were sort of tier two categories, so they didn't have the unique content which they commissioned from freelancers uh, that the tier one categories had. Um, mm. But also, they did want we we felt they were important enough to be sort of indexed and had a bit of potential. So, you know, I just spent time in Google Sheets writing essentially a formula <laughs> that pulled the content together, and it worked. But it took hours yeah. just to write that, that was, formula. And that's the longest formula I've ever seen. <laughs> it was not. I mean, one of I showed it to one of my colleagues who's also quite who's well better than me at Google Sheets, and she just sort of was. She said it looked horrible, but if it worked, then fair enough. And it does work, and it does the job. But I I like to think that an AI would do it better and quicker than I did it. This is the thing we've obviously just been discussing: um, should you include content, or how much content should you include on uh, category pages? And now we're talking about automating this inclusion so you know we're, we're suggesting that we do need to include the content yeah um and now we're, we're saying like you know there is a quality control issue but then i think it feeds in well to the points you raised in the last conversation is it you need to look at the page beyond that snippet of text to make sure that it's adding, adding value i think this automated content um, in isolation it's not going to be enough to provide quality it's what yeah. comes alongside that information on the landing page I think you need to put in some key elements like because I know with the way na- uh, language generation works currently, you can do it off a prompt. So you could maybe do a kind of standard opening sentence or something which is keyword targeted and then that can be the prompt that does the rest of it. But I think given what we've spoken about with internal links and some of the other things that category content needs to do, you need to be able to include that reliably as well. You can't. It's not just about the text, it's about the, the other things that, that the content needs to do. Mm-hmm. Cool. Shall we? Uh, shall we spend ten minutes or so uh, doing the uh, the guest post drama um, before we uh, before we close this episode? Yeah, sounds good. Um, Sean, do you want to introduce this? Because I know you you raised this as a topic you were interested in. Yeah. Well, I mean, this topic, and I guess the also the conversation about should we include content on category landing pages they just stood out to me and i found it quite ironic that we're in 2020 we decided to do an episode on what's changed in seo um over the years and we're still talking about you know should we include content on pages and should we build should we or should we not build links from guest posting yeah Um, i mean i don't know where to start really i found it pretty astonishing really when I, when this all came to light on twitter i think it was um john locke who first yeah. posted um a tweet saying that he'd um you know found that semrush had been they're often a kind of i don't know what they called it i mean just the wording of the the, the landing page from semrush you know you can now order guest blog posts yeah <laughs> on keywords you're interested in which are then placed in authoritative blogs in your niche i mean semrush they're, they're a 
reputable yep. <laughs> provider. Where so I just uh, I would say I was astonished when I saw it. I, yeah, not to add to that, gobsmacked. Yeah, well, the, the funniest <laughs> still thing. Asking if that's okay, yeah. I think the tweet that I think the tweet that I remember first seeing on one of our internal chats about it, which came from someone in our PR team, was um, I think it was Tom Rayner on Twitter, where mm. he mentioned that he'd bought links from Semrush, which had then been flagged as toxic in Tem in Semrush's <laughs> own link checker, yeah. which is just beyond belief. Yeah, yeah. I guess. Yeah, I mean, at least call it something else. Do you know what I mean? I'm not yeah. trying to be call it phrase it differently. Yeah, I, mean, I don't know, but that doesn't really solve the issue as to whether or not it will be an effective link building uh, strategy. Um, the yeah. way that Semrush have positioned this offering here, I'd suggest you just holding up a big red flag for Google to come and um, <laughs> be in like your site, making a backlink profile personally. Um, yeah, but then I guess you get into that whole conversation. Okay, well, what is guest blocking where are the sort of boundaries between what we'd consider guest blogging versus outreach in a sort of digital pr sense maybe um yeah. they are they are different but there's definitely some i guess overlap in some of the i guess thought behind each each kind of method yeah i yeah. think this um and then i know you've been you've listed that there's you know a further tweet from john Mueller on this in terms of google's position in that um, actually, guest blogging won't, I think moving forward, won't provide uh, the full value, well, won't provide any value, and uh, that they should have rail-sponsored, rail-no-follow uh, attributes attached to these links as well. Um, and they just see it as a way of reaching a broader audience with this kind of, I guess, approach. Mm. Um, mm. I guess I, I saw a kind of a few yeah, conversations online and people were saying like, yeah, it's two thousand, it's 2020. Don't include guest posting in your um, link building strategy. Um, however, I think even in the past 12 months or so, I've seen, you know, the impact of still, you know, having content published on, um, you know, high authority websites and, you know, yeah, seeing that, see that um, actual impact on traffic performance uh, and visibility. So, like anything with SEO, I feel like it's bad on scale. And it's also like, say, for example, it's important to include keywords within your content, but ultimately you can include in too many, ultimately yeah. ruin it. So I feel like there needs to be a variety in terms of that you aim to acquire coverage and backlinks. But I feel guest posting can be done right. I feel like mm. if you are um, an authoritative source, actually publications welcome you to you know publish content every month or two months or so and that that's completely valid and therefore if you are uh, providing uh content that's benefiting the user and that, that the website feels like you know you are an authoritative voice on that topic of the website then it's perfectly valid and i still feel like they will provide um yeah the, the link in that if it's linking to a resource or the author or anything like that, I think that will provide value. Again, mm. if a website is, also, uh, if a publication or a website is ultimately built on guest posts, that they have submit your guest posts and everything like that, and yeah, the content on the website is basically dependent on guest authors, then yeah, you're probably not going to get as much value. Well, yeah, you you're going to get pretty much little to no value from that. However, I feel there are still guest posting opportunities in 2020 and beyond on you know building relationships with publications that are relevant towards your sector or industry 
that will pass by you to your website. And yeah. well, that's my opinion. And I've and I'm basing that on working with clients that do have kind of those spots uh, and have used use those spots to drive you know coverage to the website and have seen visibility um, from that. Uh, yeah, I think the thing that stands out to me from this service offering provided by Semrush, I think it changed that now um it's just a mechanical nature of the offering so it's like you know choose your word count <laughs> select yeah. the traffic you want to receive yeah. how many links you want. and we know that like you know it, how can they predict that it's going to return that much traffic without there being some suspicious yeah. goings on behind the scenes because yeah i think it's it it's the mechanical sort of nature of it just yeah. feels real really old hat and i guess the difference between what ed was describing versus this approach is that and perhaps we achieve this through some of our um, digital PR methods is that we're, we're adding value to the sites that we're outreaching for. You, you know, it could be perceived as guest posting, but more often than not, uh, I'd say probably all of the time, we're reaching out with some unique information, some mm. insight, some, some, some data that um, users of the websites that we're reaching out to would, would find interesting and that would add value to that website. Um, yeah. And then, as I'm sure... Um, you know, everyone in our digital PR team would would tell you that we're we're also looking for benefits beyond those links. Whereas this yeah. feels like, you know, links traffic. It's yeah, it doesn't feel yeah. organic at yeah. all to me. And I think it's still it's important. I know our digital PR team does this, and we definitely think it's best practice. Just we just don't don't pay for links. Like in in any capacity, our digital PR team would never place any sort of content on another website where they have to pay for it. Mm. Yeah, certainly. And then again, it's all about variety, isn't it? You shouldn't rely on guest posting as your ultimate uh, way yeah. of acquiring coverage or publicity. Yeah, the, that that side of things. Whereas you should have a diverse range of, yeah. you know, having gaining relevant and uh, links to your yeah. website. And I mean, this is probably a topic for for a different podcast other than an on page SEO podcast. But from what I've seen, like. I, I think you would struggle in most industries to build a whole strategy around guest posting anyway, because I think so many sites are kind of wise to Google's regulations and are sort of scared of being penalized themselves that a lot of them just, just won't do it or would make you charge and do it as a sponsored post. Um, I think the vast majority of our sort of day-to-day -day digital PR work now involves much more in terms of journalist responses, news jacking, um, sort of providing comments and, and obviously doing the, the higher level sort of more resource intensive campaigns and, and reports and things as well. Like, I, I couldn't think of any client where guest posting is the sole sort of pillar of their strategy. No, definitely not. Cool. Well, I think we will, we'll leave this episode here then and uh, we will wrap it up and uh, then we'll go on to recording our second episode, which will be out in a, a couple of weeks after this one. Um, I want to make sure we've got, uh, enough time to talk about that topic properly because uh, we're going to be chatting, uh, getting Sean and Ed's thoughts on uh, how working in the SEO industry um, and agency life really has changed during their time working. Um, they both sort of worked in multiple agencies and and done a number of different roles within the industry and seen a fair few changes. So uh, I think it'd be really valuable to have a conversation about uh, just some of the practicalities of that in terms of the strategy side. Um, and also maybe sort of client relationship side and how agencies work, which hopefully will be a really good conversation, whether you are uh, an SEO professional in an agency or whether you're working in-house and working with an agency or, or thinking about it. 
um, we hope that'll be a really useful conversation. Um, but if you want to uh, send in any questions or get in touch with, with me or Ed or our guests, uh, then Twitter is probably the easiest way to do that. Uh, Ed and I are both on Twitter at the Ben J Gary with two R's in Gary, uh, and Ed is at Ed J T W with two D's in Ed. Uh, and you can also find Sean uh, at Sean P B, uh, which is Sean S E A N. Uh, Sean, are you particularly active on Twitter? Do you, do you use it much? Not as active in posting as I used to be. I mean, at this moment in time, I'm not overly active on social media in general for reasons we will not go into but <laughs> yeah fun fact or um, daft fact i guess is the p in sean pb is for paul so yeah um, my, my, my middle name is paul so i'm you know sean paul funnier <laughs> <laughs> than others i mean i don't having you know heard other people find that funny for the past 15 years but yeah that's the p <laughs> I, I, do, um, I use twitter of course to sort of keep up to date with with industry news i will occasionally um sort of retweet or or post um sort of yeah. news coming out of impression so i am on there and i am active but perhaps not as i was um a few fair months enough. <laughs> fair enough well you we, you can find sean there anyway and if you want to send him a message or something i'm sure he would he'd appreciate that and uh in the meantime uh if you can't wait for your next helping of digital marketing content over the next two weeks um, Impression is always putting out loads of different content. We're particularly active in webinars at the moment. Um, we've just run one uh, in conjunction with Google um, where we spoke about PPC and digital PR, uh, which I believe is live on YouTube. I hope I'm not wrong about that. I haven't checked. Um, and we are, we're running uh, plenty more and have more in the works. Um, so if you want to find out about any of the webinars we're doing or see any of our other uh, any of our other content, if I could speak, that would help. Um, you can find everything at impression.co.uk slash blog. Uh, all of these episodes are posted there as well. So uh, if you're not sure what's going on, that's kind of your one-stop shop to see everything that we're doing. Um, Ed and I also wanted to recommend uh, womenintechseo.com. Uh, as another great way to find uh, many more sort of speakers and authors in this industry. Um, there's a huge range of uh, some fantastic tech SEOs there, including uh, Aleda Solis, I believe, um, who is uh, whose article we discussed in this episode. Uh, and if you go to womenintechseo.com slash speakers, uh, you'll be able to see uh, a list of their sort of associated um, professionals and, and find links to their profiles and things to find their content. So last thing to say then, Sean, thank you for coming on this week. Uh, we're looking, to, uh, looking forward to chatting to you more about your SEO experience in a couple of weeks' time. Uh, thanks, Ed, as always. Uh, and we will all be back uh, in two weeks with the next episode. You're very welcome. Thank you, guys. See you.